Welcome to Madison Voices. Theater is a reflection of society and the times in which we live. We give voice to the artist's perspective on art, theater, family, and life. We want to take this time to celebrate the talent, passion, and stories of those who are part of the Madison Theater family. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Angelo Furboni, Artistic Director of the Madison Theater at Malloy College. Today, I've invited the director, choreographer, and playwright to the podcast, DJ Salisbury. He is slated to direct and choreograph the upcoming production at the Madison Theater, All Shook Up, which was originally scheduled to open in May of this year, but we found it necessary to push the production back to a new July opening. We will talk about this production and more as we explore his career in theater. Welcome, DJ. So, DJ, as I was researching for today's interview, I see you've directed and choreographed well over 100 productions, choreographed another, just choreographed another 30 productions, and you authored or either co-authored eight original plays and musicals. I mean, where do you find the time to do all this stuff? Oh, man. Well, you know, it seems like we have plenty of time in, at this point, but... Uh... Uh, you know, it has happened over the course of a career, so it seemed like it was all jam-packed in some one short period, but it's been spread out in a, in a way that was manageable. Um, even while I was continuing to perform, I was directing and choreographing occasionally, and also um, pretty soon after I stopped performing and was only directing, then I really picked up the, uh, more of the writing projects. Well, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about your performance, because a lot of our viewers know you as a director, not viewers, our listeners may know you as a director or a choreographer, but you started as a performer. I did. I got a BFA um, from Western Kentucky University, the only uh, BFA in performing arts in Kentucky at that time, which was the mid 80s. And uh, Kentucky was my home state. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I was going to be a veterinarian, and I went to... Uh, a university in St. Louis called Washington University in St. Louis because of their uh, very impressive pre-med program, which is what you do as a uh, would-be veterinarian. But uh, my dance teacher and acting teachers were very encouraging of me there. And I thought, okay, I'll try this for a while. I can always go back if I so choose, but uh, that never was the case. I never, I never chose. You never chose to go back. Do you wish you would, would have gone in? And this is a hard business. Do you wish you would have gone into veterinary? Absolutely not. I, I am pretty, oh golly, what's the word for it? I, I look at things that come into my life as opportunities to learn and grow. Mm-hmm. We're here as long as we're here. So you might call it a sort of a spiritual, possibly spiritual uh, a take on things. But I knew very quickly when I did switch into performing arts that that was my right livelihood, that this is what I'm actually here on the earth to do while I'm here. Right. And you were performing right out of college then? Right out of college. I, um, interestingly, my family had moved to Orlando because my nephew had some uh, medical challenges that only there was a clinic in Orlando that was suitable for him. So my family had moved here while I was still in school in Kentucky. I auditioned in Nashville, Tennessee for Walt Disney World. So oddly enough, I moved to my new hometown right out of college. My first job out of uh, college was a world dancer at Epcot Center. Wow. And what did, what did you do at Epcot? I mean, there's so many different worlds. Were you a part of a specific country? Yes. Well, it was in that period, uh, <clears throat> uh, woefully lament that they don't have as much live entertainment at Walt Disney World as they once had. The uh, late 70s and 80s were the time of live entertainment 
entertainment at Walt Disney World and all the parks. And they had, uh, everybody knows about Kids of the Kingdom. Well, that's a very familiar uh, term. The Kids of the Kingdom were the singer-dancers who performed primarily at the Magic Kingdom. When Epcot opened, they determined to create a whole new group that was more specifically focused on dance. There was also singing, but most more specifically focused on dance. And we were essentially the dance company of Disney World. We were called World Dancers. So we did a show at the American Adventure Pavilion on the American Gardens stage, is what we called. That was a collection of um, a review of ethnic dances from around the world, which is in fitting, of course, with the World Showcase uh, theme. But we were kids from all over the country. They auditioned, uh, I think, five or seven major metropolitan cities. They would do a, a national tour every year. Um, and uh, it's it's it was a dream come true, as they say, because I had always thought, wouldn't it be great to work at Disney World? <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you a question about that. I mean, you said you toured. So it wasn't just at Epcot. They actually brought you out on tour? I'm sorry. I wasn't clear. The auditions in that era, oh. they would do a national tour of auditions to find right. people for their shows. So, uh, you know, this sounds like a brag, but I'm, I guess I'm just would say I'm grateful to have been chosen because it was very much an elite job at that time in the mid eighties to get a Disney performing job. Right. Um, it, how big was your company? Uh, the company, I think we were 30 and, wow. uh, many of those names are recognizable now in terms of having gone on to have pretty great careers. Uh, one that's probably the most familiar, I think, would be Joey Peasy, mm-hmm. who uh, was the co-choreographer of the film Mary Poppins Returns. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there are others. So I don't need to bring up the long list, but it's a pretty long list of people that came out of that particular group, the World Dancers, um, who went on to Broadway careers because they, they were really pretty strong dancers and singers. Yeah, I worked with Joey and Victor Victoria. Yeah, great. Many- what a t- Oh, here's a fun story. He uh, lied about his age to get a job at Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> How old was he? I think he was 16 and you had to be 17. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that's the, those are the numbers. Um, but as I know, you know, he's just such a brilliant talent. So gifted yeah. at answer. Um, so they said, yes, we want you. And um, I guess they looked the other way when they figured out he was actually too young. Uh, was, was he, was he, was he was really, really too young, young or was it like, like a couple, a couple months, months away from, from turning 17? I wish I knew. I don't know his birthday. Mike, I mean, hello, you're only a year away from a birthday anyway, so it probably right. wasn't so far away. Uh, but he just skirted the rules a little bit. But he was much appreciated and, again, has gone on to a terrific career. Absolutely, absolutely. So talk about your performance career. Did you do a lot of tours? And, and, and where did you end up? And why did you switch from performing uh, to choreography, obviously, that's sort of the natural progression. I, I tell you, um, okay, let's go way back. So the way back <laughs> machine takes us to the early and mid seventies when I was a, a shy kid in Eastern Kentucky, where the idea of a drama class hadn't even occurred to the people in the school systems. There, we had no drama class at all in my uh, K through twelve. But DJ, for whatever reason, uh, took a shine to puppets and would make a place for his puppets. And that translated to then doing, I remember the sixth grade Christmas pageant that, <laughs> that I wrote and, and directed. And uh, <laughs> so then performing was something that I can do and, and had done. Uh, I knew that I had skills there and again, had some encouragement in my first year of college. But when I ended up in Western, at Western Kentucky University, in a BFA program, 
Um, I was given the opportunity to do an independent study to write a musical. It was my, I pitched the idea. Mm-hmm. And the professors, the department heads said, sure. They let me do it. I got credit for that in my junior year. And lo and behold, they opted to make that show that I wrote one of their main stage shows when I was a senior. Yeah. What's the name of the show? It's, it was called uh, In Search of the Sparkle, a young, young adult slash children's theater piece um, about someone having lost their sparkle and having a, a little bit of a, a mystery tour to find it. <laughs> uh, but it was original music. I had a wonderful composer named Jerry Williams, uh, and uh, I got to direct it. So I'll also say, that tees up the due to your question. I discovered there how much joy and uh, yet I, I experienced in writing and also in choreographing because the dance company at the school, our little collection of students that had a dance company, uh, I was afforded the opportunity to, to do choreography for their concerts. So even though it was a small school, I will shout out to all small schools around the country. Uh, what I found was I had opportunities that I got to create that I might not have had in bigger programs. And, uh, you know, I sort of was kicking and screaming for a bit when I first got there, thinking, oh, this program is so small. But what I had the opportunity to do, I don't know that I would have had in a larger program that was more essentially structured. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful for having had that experience because that's really that's that has steered my career toward writing, directing, choreographing. Yeah, I mean that's that's amazing. I love small schools for that reason as well. You know, there's more opportunities that you normally wouldn't get, and people find different routes and different ways of uh, expressing themselves. And you, you know, I, I looked at you, the philosophy that you have on theater is sort of amazing to me, and I love the quotes that I saw on your site. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, you know, the one we have to continue, uh, continually be jumping off cliffs and developing our wings on the way down. That's by Kurt Vonnegut. So explain that to listen. I mean, that's such a, that epitomizes theater to the nth degree, especially. Yeah, it, it, well, here's what I say. I, I thought about when you had said that you might bring up that quote. I thought, well, it really has sort of two, it's a two prong elucidation. The first being that, um, Whenever in theater, as an art form, A, it's very collaborative. It takes being collaborative with many people. But you cannot know when you start a project if it will be the, quote unquote, next big thing. So you can only come before and and channel what you know, what you've learned uh, into your creative project. But you have to always keep looking like if it's going to be viable, musical theater in specific, if it's going to be a viable product, you have to look at what is the zeitgeist, what's out there. And so you were literally are leaping into from unknown into an unknown, which is called tomorrow, to try to look at what will they want tomorrow. Because as I'm sure you also know, the project of writing a musical theater piece is not a month or a year. It's no. years, multiple <laughs> years. So you have to have sort of a little uh, uh, sense of what might be the thing tomorrow. And so that's a part of the jumping off the cliff. And then there's also the good old tried and true uh, phrase, fake it till you make it. Right. <laughs> you know, and that's sort of, I found that in that quote as well, that you have to just decide I'm committed to doing it, whether I know how at this moment or not. 
-hmm. And then you learn the skills as you go. And that I think is true for writing. It's true for directing. Every new piece I do, it's new to me. I don't automatically know how it's going to turn out, but I commit to having it turn out in excellence. That's my commitment. And then I learn how to get there. I just, Mm -hmm. I'll learn how to get there. So I I hope that's a way of looking at things, not as uh, with the arrogance of I know and I have done and therefore it will be fine, but rather I know and I have done and we'll see what happens this time. <laughs> right. And in, and sometimes in the shows that you're doing are short runs or short rehearsal periods. Sometimes you get them up and all of a sudden you realize, ooh, I should have changed that. I should have done that. And it's too late now. But And I, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping around here, but when you, you've directed so many shows, but sometimes you do multiple shows. So, you know, do you perfect it? Yeah, multiple shows of the same of the same or multiple productions of the same show, right? Do you sometimes refine your work and just say, ooh? Oh, absolutely. So this La Caja Fall that I just opened um, at Riverside Theater in Vero Beach, the last time I did, the only other time I did La Cage was in 2006 at Gateway Playhouse in Long Island. Beautiful production. I loved my production there. I kept all my notes. So I essentially replicated my choreography. But how wonderful, as I know you know, how wonderful it was to go like, ooh, that thing that I wanted to change, I get to change. <laughs> so I love that. And then I also thought about, um, I've done 10 productions of the Will Rogers Follies. Now, right. I have a, a history with the show. I was the assistant to Jeff Calhoun, who was Tommy Toon's associate choreographer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did the workshop and into the Broadway production. And then I was the dance captain on the national tour and swing for two, four years. So it's a show I know like the back of my hand, but get this, how wonderful that in the 10 productions I've done since performing in it, I've had to do three in the round. Wow. So automatically this show that there's a great association in the show of the, those, the stage wide staircase. Yeah. So that's not at all possible in the round. So I loved the challenge of looking at this piece that I know and adore and know very, very well through a completely new lens by necessity. There was no way to do it with stairs on a stage in the round. So uh, I did a production, uh, I've done three. Uh, The last was at Sacramento Music Circus. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, if I say so myself, it was gorgeous because I really know, I knew this all along, the show is valuable not because of the stage-wide staircase. It's a beautifully written show that had a, Tommy Toon's metaphor was the giant staircase, the metaphor of um, everything is grand like a Ziegfeld Follies. So that was his metaphor for grandness a la Ziegfeld Follies. But at the core of the show, the writing of the show, it can be about any other metaphor. Right. You know, because it's that solid a piece of writing. I agree. I I did, uh, I assisted Mark Hobie when they did Follies out at Paper Mill Playhouse. And and it was one of those shows that I saw on Broadway and I actually auditioned for it when Jerry Mitchell was leaving the show. And um, when I did the show, or when I worked on the show, the writing surprised me, the in-depthness and, the, and, and what the meaning of the show was. It, it shocked me because I thought it was just a dance show and it really wasn't. People always talk about the spectacle. It's got gorgeous spectacle, but there's something remarkable about how it, the story of that one man's life adds up to such an emotional uh, uh, impact. I think it's genius. 
Tell, tell me a little bit about the genius of that and what, what makes, what inspires you about it. Okay, sure. Oh, this is good. Uh, so uh, going back to my youth, uh, back in 1990 when we did the workshop, what I loved was work, being in the room with giants. Tommy Toon, Jeff Calhoun has become a giant. Yeah. Uh, he was new at that point. But uh, Cy Coleman. Betty Comden and Adolph Green. I mean, the people that wrote Singing in the Rain, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. And the guy who wrote Sweet Charity, are you kidding me? And, uh, and Peter Stone wrote 1776 uh, and other things. So that team, and then the designers, Tony Walton, Willa Kim, uh, uh, sound, Jules Pfeiffer, and Peggy Eisenhower. Stunning group of people. And I so appreciate it the humble approach to, we don't know how to make this work, but we're going to make this work. Not the arrogance of, oh, we got this sewn up. Every person kept looking at, how do we make this better? How do we make it work? It was Peter Stone's idea, so I'm to understand, to tell the story of Will Rogers in the style of a folly show. Because everyone who loved Will Rogers, all the, the people on the team loved that personage from history, but they were like, he had a kind of a good life. Where is the drama in the biography of someone who had a pretty good life? Yes, he died tragically in a plane crash, but up to that point of his death, his life was pretty good. Same wife, his whole wife, uh, children. I mean, he had a child that died in uh, infancy, but pretty good life. Um, so it was Peter Stone who said, if we tell it in the style of a folly show, the conflict essentially is between the voice of Ziegfeld saying, this is how I want your life to show up. And the man playing Will Rogers, the character Will Rogers saying, but that's not really how it happened. Right. By the end of the show, you get to how it really happened that he was such a great influence for good in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, so good. Uh, and then one day, uh, I remember there was a lyric that Tommy Toon uh, turned to Betty Compton and Adolph Green. I always say their names like, I'm just so blessed to have worked with them. Absolutely. Said, Those lyrics don't work. And they went home and overnight came back with a whole new set of lyrics for an entire song. Which song was it? Uh, it was the wedding sequence, the, the oh. double do. Without you, I'm a nameless face. And... Uh, and it was there the one phrase, uh, no shy violet, let's middle aisle it. I mean, it's great stuff. Very uh -huh. writing. <laughs> but they, they were pressed and they didn't say no. They didn't say uh, what we've written already is good enough. They listened to Tommy Toon, their, their director, and said, yes, we can make it better. That was such a lesson to me. And to jump forward, I was in one week of pre-production on Titanic. Mm -hmm. And the same thing occurred. I was like, this is what I need to remember. Maury Yeston was at the piano. We <laughs> were in a dance studio with Lynn Taylor Corbett. But Maury Yeston, the composer, not a dance arranger, but the composer was sitting at the piano. And he kept saying, like a little child with a lot of glee about it, that we can make it better. <laughs> just tell me, we'll make it better. What do you need? We'll make it better. And it just was so inspiring to see those experts, people that are revered, know that they're not done, that they're not going to rest on laurels, that you always look to, how do I become a bigger, better artist? 
How do I express myself in a way that maybe I've never done before? Tommy Tune said that. He always said, have I seen that before about choreography? Right. He said that. And he also said, what does that step mean? And that was an eye opener for me. I'm like, wow, he's, he assigns meaning to individual steps. And, you know, true. if you look at Jerome Robbins work uh, on West Side Story, you go, yeah, Jerome Robbins, he, he created language. They were actually talking to us through their movement. And that's where I think Tommy Shin came, had distilled it into what does that step mean? Right. Oh, it's brilliant. And, you know, you talk about Maury Eston there. I mean, he's the composer, but he wasn't the dance arranger. No, why, why why does he, you know, explain to our listeners why he would switch, why we'd give someone else the arrangements for dance when, when he's the actual composer? Well, it's an interesting thing. Some some composers uh, want to participate in the dance arrangements and some feel like it's not their skill, that they're not going to. This is conjecture. I'm not going to make this true for all composers, but it's also possible that in dance, phrases, uh, again, back to for storytelling typically, may want to be extended. You may want to repeat uh a hook over and over again because of some choreographic element. And that can rankle the feathers sometimes of a composer who has heard a particular melody in a particular sequence with a particular number of bars. Mm-hmm. And um, I will say with Cy Coleman, he was also in the room with Jeff Calhoun, the associate, when we were starting to work on the uh, pre-production of Will Rogers Follies. So right. prior to the workshop, there was a week in a studio, NOLA Studios, good old NOLA, with Cy Coleman at the piano. Again, I was shocked. I'm like, oh my gosh, Cy Coleman <laughs> here? But uh, he did occasionally push back when Jeff would say, can we extend that phrase? And he was like, no. So I'm not going to say he didn't acquiesce when it made sense to him. But that, I think, is sometimes what is happens with a composer. They don't want to have to rethink what they've thought so carefully about, if that makes sense. Right. In Absolutely. terms of melodic structure and a chord structure. And whereas a dance ranger, their job is to take that fodder, work with the choreographer, and expand it in all kinds of ways that the composer never, ever would have been asked to think of. So that's why I think uh, some composers like to have dance rangers, and some composers, like more Yeston, enjoy that process themselves. Right. That's a, that's a good point. And as a choreographer, you know that a dance has to build. It has to go someplace. It has to build. It can't just be one, you know, the same chords, the same thing. But we're, we're looking to build and add and sort of like a concerto. You know, you have your theme, you, you have your, your development parts, you know, you have your recapitulation and it has to build and go someplace. Correct. Yeah, it is, it is composition and it's a little, it, it has distinction from songwriting. Because right. songwriting has, there's structure, there's form that creates satisfying song. Dance arrangements don't have to be that. They really <laughs> probably shouldn't be that. Because you want surprise, you want all the things you're talking about uh, that come into re- good composition that's distinct from songwriting structure. Um, so, Yeah, that's great. I mean, we've both had the f- fortunate opportunity in our lives to work with some very great people, some of the greatest people. Legends, you know, and uh, one thing I loved about Tommy Tune, I never had the pleasure of working with Tommy Tune um, yet, 
But he, one thing I loved about his shows is he knew how to paint a picture. His stage pictures, I, they were like paintings. And I'm going to throw this out to you because I noticed on your 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 website you had Renoirs up there and stuff. And you you use that. Are you inspired by? I mean, what did you learn about paint? You know, stage pictures and is it? It's like art for 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 us as directors and choreographers. Talk a little bit about Renoir and inspirations. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I yes has got has got to be the answer. You know, visual uh, inspiration comes from wherever it comes from. But certainly, what you learn from visual art is it back to what we're talking about. There is a particular structure that can make something "quote unquote" good art. We all have responses. Art can be evocative, provocative, but good art has elements that you mm-hmm. can say this is good art composition. So not. There's no um, surprise that stage pictures, you're typically in the round is an exception, in the in thrust is an exception. But when you're looking at a proscenium, it is a frame. Right. So you you are essentially creating composition that is related to that which uh, a visual artist does. Uh, so yeah, I love I love art. I don't know about you, but do you have a Pinterest account? <laughs> Uh, I do have Pinterest. Yes, absolutely. I love Pinterest. I love Pinterest because when I'm doing a show, I'll create an inspiration uh, board for the show, and I just I get lost. I go down rabbit holes. <laughs> and it, I love it. And it, it it leads you to different creativities where you never thought you would go. But to talk about for our listeners who may not know what I'm talking about as a stage picture, uh, because plays you know plays are are you know between sometimes scenes between two people even musicals can be scenes but sometimes there's a stage picture with the scenery with this uh with the way staging is done so just talk a little bit about stage pictures well it's interesting i was step back and say a scenic designer that i (coughs) very much he's the artistic director at riverside theater he said that in his training as a scenic designer uh one of the things that stuck with him um was that a set in and of itself, cannot be complete. It must have the actors. And it really sat on me. I'm like, he's exa- I get it. So good design has to do with, with all of how everything gets placed or can move in our case, because it is a, we are a, a kinetic art. Uh, so when I look at a set design, for example, I want to think about the people on that set, not just the set is pretty in and of itself. But how are my actors going to be on that set? And if I can start to see pictures in my mind about different scenes with the furniture, for example, which uh, that's when I love spiking shows. I don't know about you. You like spiking shows? <laughs> Explain that because our listeners may not know what spiking is. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's, it's where you decide, okay, you've got a couch in the living room of your set, let's say. And you, you have to decide where in that living room set you're going to put that couch. And then once you have decided where that couch goes, you put tape marks on the floor so that when that couch goes away for the next scene, when you come back to that scene, you'll know where the couch goes. Right. So spike, spike marks on the floor tell you where that piece of furniture or that set piece goes when it's on stage. Right. And why is it important to hit the same spot? Well, for lighting, for again, for composition, uh, mm-hmm. every, for, the, for the blocking so that the actors aren't confused. Right. That they have their anchors. They know where things are supposed to be. And safety. I mean, there's all, all the reasons. Um, but uh, 
that, yeah, I love spiking because even spiking is yet another way of like, now I get to decide after I've rehearsed the show because spiking of the furniture happens when you're getting into the tech process. So it's after your rehearsals in the studio. I always know my furniture is going to be slightly different than it was in the studio. Because right. now you have the big picture. You have the entire actual set. And the feel of being more removed from your actors, because uh, usually in a studio, you're sort of like right there with them. Now I'm back in the theater. My pictures, the pictures will change because of the space, the distance of, from me to the stage. So right. I love spiking because I know I'm, I'm, making, I'm honing it still more to make it still more of what I see in my mind's eye. Have you ever gotten into a situation where you thought, boy, I wish I could move that wall? Because in rehearsals, we tape out the set on the stage. So we sort of know where things are. And, you know, there's stairs, but they're, it's flat. You know, there's walls. With, but when you get on stage, those walls are solid now. They're not, they're not something you can step around or see through or anything. So talk about how you, as a director and a choreographer, how you might have to do a 360 or a 180 on direction and choreography once you're actually on this physical set. Sure, yeah. I mean, that, that shows up a lot, I think, with choreography that you have to make adjustments on the fly uh, because depth, more often than not, depth and width, but depth from the back, if there's a drop or wall in your set, to the edge of the stage when there's no actual edge of the stage in a rehearsal room and they can dance right up to the tape line that represents the edge of the stage, they may be towing that line when in actuality, their natural instinct will be to stay back from that line from the actual edge of the stage for safety. Mm -hmm. So you're gonna condense it or even sometimes have to re-block your choreography because it does doesn't fit in quite the same way that it seems to fit within the tape marks in the studio. So you, you, I'm prepared usually for that. Usually I'll know what will need to be altered. Sometimes I'm surprised, but more often than not, I know like, I'll fix that on the stage. I'll right. know how to do it when I get there. Right. As a director of choreography, you're sort of in control of everything. You always have assistants to help you. But as a choreographer, you're working with another director. Now, how, how, what's, what's the difference of being a director choreographer where you can say, this is my picture, this is what I want to go. But as a choreographer, sometimes the director will say, no, the picture is, I need you to eliminate this. I need you to move this. I need you to change. You know, talk about those differences and challenges. Well, they, yeah, they are differences and challenges, sure. Um, as a director choreographer, uh, it's seamless, meaning that the, my vision for the show is essentially one vision. Uh, whereas when I'm working as a choreographer, I'll have a vision, but I have to keep checking my vision against that of the directors, mm -hmm. not in a bad way, but no. my job as the choreographer is to fulfill his or her vision. I have a vision. And so I look to try to like, if it's, if it's like a cubbyhole, I put my vision within the confines of their big picture vision, because I know that they also have a vision for, um, the designers all the designers. Right. I can certainly have input when we're in production meetings, but inevitably what the director decides is what we all must like bounce our ideas off of, measure them against the director's vision. Right. So uh, I don't find that problematic. I Sometimes you, there is that little bit of like, ah, oh, I get to relax. I don't have to, I don't have to know <laughs> everything. I don't have to be in charge of, of uh, the conversations with all of the designers with, you know, so there's a little bit of a relief in that sense, but there's also, 
if a director comes and says, uh, no, that's not working, I have to like let go and decide, okay, so how, what did he or she say to have me now know what to do next? Right. You know, but if I'm going to shift my choreography, shift my, my dances designs, what is it that I'm hearing? I try to interpret what I'm hearing so that I can fulfill their vision. So right. That can be challenging. It's not, yeah. it's not easy. Yeah, I've been in shows where the choreographer has to restage the entire number because it just wasn't working. And, you know, it just, you know, and the choreographer, we all loved it, but, you know, he wanted less. And so everything, all this great choreography ends up to be step touch or just more movement. And, uh, you know, it's, it happens. It, it does. But, but there comes a point. I even had once I was working not terribly long ago as an associate and, uh, the choreographer was asked to essentially do what you're saying, completely change uh, a thought, a, 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 the way something was showing up. And um, and it, to my sense, the, I could tell the choreographer wanted to push back, but I applauded her and said, good, good for you for not doing the pushback, even though I know that, that was difficult. And her response was, it's never worth it. Right. And I'm like, she's exactly right. It's never worth it to fight for something that you'll probably lose anyway because the director's vision is in their mind. Mm -hmm. Your job is to do your best to interpret it. Right. And if that vision changes, it's your job to change along with it. Yeah. So, so it was really good to hear. It's never worth it to push back because it's not your responsibility to have the vision of the show. Right. And there's times that you get your own work up and you realize, oh, this is, I need to change this. And that, it depends on your actors, your dancers, you know, because, you know, I, I always felt that actors and dancers are essential to the work because they bring so much of their personalities, there's so much of their imagination into a role. So I, I'm going to direct this to you because you've done the Kaja Fo 10 times, but 10 times with 10 different casts. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. Yes, Will, Will Rogers. I mean, in La Cache Faux, how many times have you done La Cache Faux? Only twice. Yeah, but I mean, moving from show to show, do you find cast members bringing different elements that you have to just go ahead? Oh, sure. Uh, I've done now Buddy Holly seven times. Right, small cast too. Uh, that's a 15 person cast. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done. Uh, Million Dollar Quartet three times. Um, so things start to come back around. I've done Ain't Misbehaven twice. Uh, that's an interesting one to talk about because Ain't Misbehaven, it essentially is a personality piece. Right. It is absolutely about the synergy of those five performers. Um, so it, change one performer in a group of five and the, the dynamic is completely different. Mm-hmm. So I, I loved it. I love I love that part of working with actors. I love finding out how they are going to become a well-oiled machine together. Mm -hmm. and, and it can be bumpy getting there, but that's but it's it's fun. That's that's the, the fun of the job is figuring out the, the how the machine is going to work when you turn that switch and put it out in the world. How do we get it there? How do we make it so that when you turn it on, it's just going to go and work? Uh, so with Will Rogers Follies, I've had how many Wills? Let's see. Not 10, interestingly, because I had um, some productions with the same actor playing Will. 
but mm-hmm. say six wills. That seems right. Right. Uh, and all very different. Again, the role calls for someone to bring their own personality into right. it because nobody really knows um, of modern modern audiences don't have a real sense of who was Will as a human being off stage. Mm-hmm. We and we do have recordings, but we don't really have a sense. What we need to believe is that there's a a big person in front of you, and by right. big I mean size. I mean of of heart and generosity and ability to connect with the masses. Right. That's what you look for in a will. Someone who just has that knack. And I can tell you my one of my favorites, I love them all, but one of my favorites is David Lutkin, who was the he was the understudy, the second understudy to Keith Carradine on the original production. Mm-hmm. And I it's hard to explain, but he walks on stage and before he said Three sentences, you believe he's Will Rogers. Right. There's a beingness that he has that so is so enormous, and yet he's he's kind of got an aw shucks quality. Mm-hmm. So it's not about boisterous. It's not Harold Hill, the music man, big. It's it's just so clear that he's settled into his humanity. And I go, that's Will Rogers. It's it's brilliant. So I look. So if I don't have that, I say, "What is this actor bringing that we can make that? What What is this actor? How is his being such that I can say connect that for an audience to what they think is Will Rogers?" Right. It's a great game. So much fun. Oh, it is. I I, I mean I I love actors and dancers. I really do, uh, especially with choreography. Dancers sometimes you get stuck as a choreographer and you're staging something. Someone does something, you're like, "That's it. That's what I want." You know? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And there were those moments that uh, I love Tommy June's term, "happy accidents." Yep. Where somebody does something literally wrong, and he goes, "Keep it that <laughs> wrong." <laughs> Meaning wrong in terms of what was intended initially, whether it be choreography or uh, a, a, fly, a drop or something is halfway in or halfway out. He's like that. I want that. Yeah. Things that were completely not anticipated that stay in the show. They're in the show. Have, what 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 are your some some of your stories and happy accidents of? I mean, I'm sure you have tons of stories, but goodness, let me think about. It. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the first things that come to mind are the things that did not did not stay. Well, let's talk about those because that happens all the time. It happens all the time. Well, the number that is uh, probably the most familiar in terms of uh, visual memory, kinetic memory in Will Rogers' Follies is the campaign number mm-hmm. where the uh, 16 chorus women and Will are sitting on the front step doing right. what you could call a quote-unquote patty cake routine. And it's it's famous. It's, it's the famous signature of Will Rogers Follies. And people think about Will Rogers Follies, they're probably somewhere along the route going to think of that particular number. Mm-hmm. It's all red, white, and blue because Will Rogers did run for president. Right. It's a kind of a joke, but uh, that is represented in the show by this number. Um, but in the workshop, I think we did certainly three, if not four, completely different versions that were not even patty cake. They were not even patty cake. Uh, they got that sitting on the edge of the stage. And I remember Tommy Toon saying something about um, 
footage, vaudeville footage, where he had seen something like that. So that's what he wanted to adopt because a period, uh, period right. truth. Um, but prior to that, the number had been sort of this serpentine march all the way down the stairs. Uh, people pretending to be lawyers and doctors. It was so completely different. Uh, just completely different, completely different song. Uh, so I, I love that it evolved. That right. The sense of exploration in the workshop was, was real. It wasn't like, here's our script and this is what we had already planned to do and, and let's just do that. It was a real exploration. Uh, oh, here's another one. So this is a good one. So okay. Katie, Huffman, Katie Huffman was our uh, soubrette. The, uh, Ziegfeld's favorite is the character's name. Right. And Katie is a dynamo. As we know, she uh, got the Tony nomination for Ziegfeld's favorite. She won the Tony for Ula in The Producers. Ten right. years later. Ten years later. Well, anyway, uh, Tommy wanted to have that character show up in the sequence set, quote unquote, on the moon, um, as in <laughs> the sequence. He wanted her to walk on a ball like they do in circuses. Right. Because oh he thought that was, yeah. So she, during the workshop, uh, five week workshop, she was always in the wings on a giant ball learning how to walk on the ball. Because it's not easy. Let me tell you. <laughs> she was so dedicated. She was learning how to walk on that ball. And then we got her in the scene. And the thing about walking on a ball, you can't stop moving. Because it's all about balance. You can't stop moving. So, so, And inevitably, you have to be barefoot. Because your feet have to sort of grip the top of the big giant ball, right? Mm-hmm. And he just... Determined, he when he finally saw it, he knew it was not elegant. Right. And he didn't want the he didn't want her to look like a buffoon, like a clown, or a tumbler. You know where where it's it's, it's not the character that we've met. Uh, so that's why Katie Huffman was uh, competent as a in point work. He put mm -hmm. her on point shoes. Right. And then dressed her in a long Lady Godiva wig with a giant rocket around her. So she would, <laughs> she would come on point, which was elegant, still sort of surprising and whimsical with the giant rocket mm -hmm. costume. But it was it was elegant. So that was uh, something I learned. He, he saw what he thought would work that didn't work. And even though the actor had done a lot of uh, preparation, he knew he couldn't keep it. So that's right. I say it now that I'm saying this out loud, it, it really brings up to me that some of my most challenging time for me as a director or choreographer is not wanting to disappoint the actor. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it's, and it's been, a, I'm better at it now, but there have been times where I may not have said X, Y, Z feedback or changed something that wasn't working because I feared the actor would be upset, feel like I was telling them that they were inadequate. Mm -hmm. But I, I've learned more and more, Tommy Toon had the right idea. You choose what's going to be great for the big picture because that will serve the actor. Right. And I'm and sure Kate. Yeah, letting them look their best. In fact, ensuring that they look their best is my job. And I, I shouldn't fear that they may 
be uh, disgruntled when I say, sorry, you got to cut that line or you got to cut that bit or you got to do better at that tap step or I'm changing that tap step because you're not good at it. I don't say it in that way, but now I know my job is to protect them and make them look fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to, I won't say names, but I've seen a couple of Broadway shows, frankly, where I wanted to, I said, how dare you choreographer make that actor look bad? How dare you? Um, so it's, it's something I struggle with. I'm telling you, I do struggle with it because I, I don't want to, I'm a people pleaser. I don't want to hurt the feelings of the actor, but more and more I go, I'm there to protect them and make them look good. That's my job. It's our, that's our job is make sure it's not our faces on that stage. It's those actors and dancers. So. Correct. And if they're doing something that, that, that uh, someone in the audience feels like they're not good at, I have failed. Right. That's an interesting point. You know, Katie must have been thrilled when she had to get off that ball. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine how many times she fell trying to dance on that thing or trying to walk on that thing. Well, she never had to like uh, fall on the butt fall, but because you, you can step off of it since you're standing. But she was diligent. She was always working on that thing. And uh, I don't remember if I clocked her reaction when he cut it, but I probably could guess that she was relieved. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I love Katie. She's great. So, you know, we work, you work on these shows and we'll stick with Will Rogers or like all shook up that you're going to be doing at the Madison Theater. But you go to different size theaters. Like you said, you talked about going into the round with some shows. You, you, you deal with different budgets. You did diff, different time time uh, allotment, and and sometimes you get more creative with smaller budgets because you don't. You, so talk about the, those cha- uh, going realizing a show that you just love and you think this is what I want to recreate, and then going someplace that has you know ten ten less feet uh, on the stage. Small smaller budgets, you know, it's a thrust. It's not a proscenium, whatever, you know. Sure. Uh, well, uh, hopefully you know all that in advance so you can plan accordingly. So a good example, the last production of Buddy I did was just in December and January of, this, of 19 and 20. We opened, uh, we started rehearsals in December and we opened uh, in January. And I had been told that the theater was had a lower budget. Uh, I knew by my contract it had a lower budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I wanted to do the show because I love the show and I love what it does for audiences. Just very quickly, I'll say it's one of those shows where you see 70 year olds become teenagers again. So it just warms my heart because they hear the music of their youth, literally the yeah. music they yeah. listen to as teenagers yeah. and they get up and dance in the aisles. It's just, it just does my heart a great turn. So that's, that's why I love doing it. Um, so I knew that they were limited of budget, and I'd heard from someone that had done a show there that uh, the sets, the transitions from set to set weren't skillfully done because they had too few people backstage, which is also right. something you have to think about. Like, if you don't have the bodies to move the set, the set doesn't get moved. <laughs> so, Or it slows uh, the whole show down. <laughs> or it slows, which, is, which I know you will know is what we call death, stage yeah. death where you're just waiting and waiting. Oh, it's the worst. So we designed, I worked with the designer to design it so that those things were put into place in the plan. Few people needed to move the set pieces and uh, 
fewer set pieces, frankly, because there wasn't a lot of backstage space. So I reused pieces to become different things. So it had a different style than all the other productions I'd done, which were more realistic. It was much more schematic, stylized, mm-hmm. but it worked. Yeah, and, and some theaters have fly space, uh, which is where you can actually take a drop and raise it up and drop it down, and some spaces don't. So that adds another challenge. Absolutely, yeah. And especially if you've done a show that's heavy on drops, uh, Will Rogers is one of those where it's heavy on drops, tends to be. Um, then if you don't have a fly space, what do you do? Travelers, roll drops, it gets tricky. You have to figure out other ways of getting scene to scene because that show, as our most modern shows, has been uh, designed to be seamless in transition. Mm-hmm. So you're never waiting on the next scene. Right. You're, never, you're never waiting in the dark, I should say, which in old style musicals, you might have a blackout and there might be music that plays while the set has changed. Mm-hmm. That's not modern style of, of uh, show construction. And um, even before Will Rogers, but definitely Will Rogers, they designed it so there would never need to be blackout wait. So so when you have a show that's been designed with no waiting, you have to figure it out. You got to figure it out. Yeah, if you have no fly space, you figure it out. I uh, just did in the Kaj as an example. Uh, There was one large transition. The set was gorgeous, but Mm -hmm. one large transition that took some time. So we doubled the music uh, transition that was there. I brought the character that was going to be the focal point, let's say, of the next scene, um, the woman who owns the restaurant. I brought her in the house, mm-hmm. led her in the house, reading actual audience members, because in the scene, the audience is included as if they are the patrons of her restaurant. Right. So we started it by lighting her in the aisle while they're doing the set transition. Then I lit stage left with one couple at one table. By that point, the rest of the set had been put into place and then I could rise the lights on the rest of the stage. But that that wasn't really built into the show. We just, but we doubled the bars of music to accommodate it and it worked. And it worked and it's brilliant. I mean, as you said, theater has become so cinematic in a way where people, I mean, our attention spans are gone with all the video and everything that we watch that, I mean, theater almost has to be seamless and you have to be able to go from one scene to the next and you have to go from Paris to, you know, to Italy or Paris to America, the old West instantaneously. You know, like you're cutting in a film. And those that raises other challenges. It does. Uh, it, I, I always think about, you know, back in the... You see theaters around the country that don't have fly spaces and all these summer stock places that don't have wings, for example. Um, because in the old days, you would have a barn in the back where you stored the set pieces and they were used as Luan pieces of flat. Mm-hmm. And the expectations have changed. Even right. in those summer stock theaters. So... Even the expectations have changed, but their physical spaces haven't. <laughs> so it's really, <laughs> it can be really tricky. Yeah, have you ever come into a space and just said, uh, "I worked on a on an off uh, a summer stock theater that I looked at the stage we were doing Man of La Mancha, and the stage was so tiny, and I kept thinking, how are we going to do this? I mean, in the set, the dance floor area, the dance area was probably 16 by 8 or 12 and it had a bunch of props in it and then there were stairs and stuff like that 
I mean, that that can be really tricky when you get to these small theaters. Yeah, and and a good challenge, and for the audience, often thrilling because it's yeah. right in their right in their laps. Mm-hmm. I, I think about it, I did one production of Annie Gets Your Gun. It was my second. Uh, I did one that was more fully realized, but my second one. Uh, I had thought I could do the same concept. Then I got there and it literally was a barn in Maine and an adorable barn in Maine, but tiny stage, uh, no possibility of actual flies. You could uh, do headers, but there wasn't a full fly space for a full drop. And uh, so the only thing I could think of to do was use periactoid and have those three-sided units keep changing sides and be either put together or spaced apart. And then each of those three units would open. So a whole scene could be one of those open periodicals, I think is the, the singular. Right. Uh, and then the surround was, because it's Annie Get Your Gun, was like a, <laughs> an arcade shooting gallery with ducks. Like <laughs> Because I thought, you know, I'm going to make this whimsical and not try to do anything realistic because they can't. Right. It, you know, so why try? Just make it stylized and let an audience make it up in their minds. And I, lovely. And it's it's a uh, they're very their designers are very adept at making their spaces work with these constructions. I, I I applaud all of them for the work that they do out there. Yeah, it's it's great to see what they come up with given the the limitations. Back right. to your about limitations choreographically. I used to teach occasionally teach uh, dance composition, and that was always one of the best games. Is like, what is your limit? Do you create a dance with a limitation? So, what if the limitation is, uh, I don't know. Let's uh, not think about anything anything in specific, but like there's a particular prop that you must use, mm-hmm. and that actually you call it a limitation. It can be called a limitation, but it can inspire creativity to see things in ways that you had not previously seen them. Right. And uh, so I'd love to have those kinds of challenges. Well, absolutely. And, and nowadays, because of what's happening in the world, I mean, a lot of dance classes like BFA programs, I know our own BFA program here at Malloy, they're taking dance classes in their living rooms, you know, online through Zoom. And, you know, all the choreography has to be confined to, you know, a small little area. Yeah. <laughs> And I think the instructors are incredible. They've done a great job in creating these little vignettes, you know, to help the students continue to learn via Zoom. Right. And if I, across the floor becomes like one count of eight. <laughs> across the dining room. <laughs> across the dining room. <laughs> exactly. If you have a dining room in New York, you have like a studio apartment, you know. Right. And your and your roommates are crossing through with their stereos. <laughs> it's like someone's washing dishes in the background. It's it's crazy. Well, let's talk a little bit about All Shook Up, I mean, what you're going to be doing here. I mean, we had to change the date, as I spoke about earlier, um, from May to June, or May to July, excuse me. Uh, but we're actually auditioning everyone via Skype and via, you know, they have to send in their tapes. You had to choreograph a little piece for them to learn and send it into us. Well, I mean, what kind of challenges are you, I mean, this is. You know, it's surprising. I will say we, to a degree, we as directors are to a degree ahead of the curve here because I have cast from video before. 
this will be the first time it's entirely, I believe, from video. Um, but I, I'm pretty good at seeing what I need to see um, in a screening, meaning the first thing that I see from uh, an actor, singer, dancer, whatever they've submitted. What I know will be different in this case, I believe, is that when we get to the callback situation, it'll be interactive. Right. Where I'm able to actually have a conversation with the performer. Um, that I have not yet done in casting. I've done a lot of pre-screening and even casting from video. Like, <coughs> um, so I think, and in this show in particular, there, there are elements uh, and personality elements and uh, essences, I call them, that mm -hmm. I want to sort of get from having a conversation with someone. Right. So, so that will be the new step in casting for me. Right. And it's a, it's a relatively small cast, large cast. You have what's, and everyone has their own little features. Yeah, it, it's, I would call it a medium-sized cast. It doesn't have to be huge. It can be bigger if you wanted to be bigger with lots more towns people. Mm -hmm. um, but there are actually quite a number of principles. Right. Um, it's, I think it's a great choice for a universal program because they're all the principal roles are pretty darn great. Um, right. And so the ensemble can be smaller or larger depending what you want. Um, my guess is we're going to be somewhere around the 20 mark. Mm -hmm. around 20. It helps our budget that way too. Um, so if, 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 I mean, is this a show that you love to talk about a little bit about this, this all shook up Elvis show? Oh yeah. Well, well, you just said the word Elvis. All the music is uh, music that had been recorded by Elvis, not by the same writers, but that the connective tissue is that they were all recorded by Elvis. Right. And um, so actually, those stylistically, they really are a range of like, I think about certainly two decades, almost two and a half decades of, of uh, writing. So the styles are very different uh, song to song. Uh, but Jordan Pietro, the book writer, uh, you know, this was sort of like early in the life of the jukebox musical being a Broadway uh, commercial venture. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, there had been some before, but this was sort of like when it was, we, people were really saying, this looks like a good formula for Broadway theater, the jukebox, right. where we take songs that exist, then create a story around those songs. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think he's done a masterful job because... He happened on the idea of using the, the 12th night tropes mm -hmm. um, and then using the song Elvis's recorded songs to do the score. So you've got two winners, don't you? Songs that we primarily all know because right. there, there will be a few uh, songs in there that not everybody will be as familiar with, but all the songs, you know, like All Shook Up, Love Me Tender, uh, Jailhouse Rock, um, it's great. So, and and I was I loved actually in the process of doing this show the first time, getting to some of the other songs better that I had maybe heard once or twice. Right. So there's one of the winners of, that they, they, he came up with was like it's a winning score already, mm -hmm. and then two using a Shakespeare story that is familiar enough of, of trope, meaning the basic ideas where it's mistaken identities one girl pretends to be a boy because she's in love with this man and the man will befriend the boy not knowing it's the girl that's in love with him and then mm -hmm. some other woman that he's in love with falls in love with the boy so it's that great circle of mistaken identity um, 
of 12 nights. So another proven as entertaining storyline. Correct. So he's mashed them together and it, it could not have worked, but I'm glad to say it really works. <laughs> it's a really good show. And it's, and funny. it's funny. And it, yeah. yeah. Super funny. And then all those great songs and great opportunity for dance. I, I'm so looking forward to it. Yeah, there's. Uh, it's interesting that you bring up Shakespeare and, and sort of his his you know Romeo and Juliet you know, turned into West Side Story. You know they they take a lot of these uh, Shakespearean themes and and it's it actually works because his his writing and his stories always were whimsical, but yet they had they had some truth into them. They had great characters. They had the villains, and they had you know it was it's fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah, West Side Story. What a masterpiece from a masterpiece. A masterpiece from a masterpiece. Yeah. So let, let me ask you, if you had one one show that you've always wanted to do that you haven't done yet, you know, what would that be? Is there some, I mean, you've done so many, but, you know, is there a dream show for you? or a, a, a... Um, Golly, I can say there are some that I haven't done that I would love to do. Um and they maybe have, they're not as commonly done. Mm -hmm. A piece I grew up loving that I, I know has its challenges, but I love it because I love the flavor of the score and the, uh, again, sort of very theatrical storytelling uh, style. And that's Robert Bridegroom. The what? The, the Robert Bridegroom? Wow. Yeah, I love that show. Uh, I saw the recent revival and I enjoyed the production, but I would love to get my hands on it because I... Right. I, I found it a very funny, um, be just stylistically so much fun set in the in Natchez Trace in the uh, early 20s or late 19th century. I can't remember exactly which, but just that the time and place is so juicy, um, and some haunting, haunting music, beautiful music, uh, but it's just kind of weird and wonderful, and just certainly um, as a director. It's the kind of show where the actors are the props and the set. Mm -hmm. You know, they it all it's all being made up in front of you, and I love that. So that's that's one of the ones that I would love to do that I haven't done because it's not very often done. Another one, which you may know well, I don't know if you've ever had association with, um, but as you ask the question, it pops in my head right away: Kiss of the Spider Woman. Oh yeah, because I think it's a great show, and. It's the kind of show that has, again, like Lacage, like the, all the ones that I gravitate toward, really gravitate toward humor and humanity. Yeah. Like, I love those shows that make me laugh and cry. The Full Monty. Full Monty. I've done the Full Monty. I would do it again in a heartbeat because it makes me laugh and cry. Ragtime. Oh. I mean, yeah. those. These are the ones that I just feel like I, even as a person who has seen them before, I get on that ride when I see them. I, and I just enjoy the ride. They're just yeah. great shows for me in terms of a ride. Um, Queen Todd, of course. I mean, it's almost cliched, isn't it? Queen Todd is just such a, it's a, it is a masterwork. I love it too. I've done Into the Woods. I've done Merrily We Roll Along, which was a surprise because that one is also not often done. So I'm grateful to have done that. Uh, but Sweeney Todd is a masterwork. Right. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. So it's so if I have to get you back here, I got to do one of those shows, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just, I, one of the great joys is like coming is like getting to know. Like when I did all shook up the first time, I didn't really know it. I did not see it on Broadway uh, when it was there. So I, it was like being handed a bowl of ice cream. The, a flavor that I'd never had before. Oh, this is so delicious. I didn't even know this existed before. <laughs> so that's how I look at shows that I don't know well. It's like I'm being handed this like bowl of ice cream that is a new flavor. How cool is that? Yeah. Um, so uh, it doesn't have to be something I've done before or even that I want to do. I always look at shows as opportunities to, to, to dig into that bowl of ice cream. Right. That's great. So my final question, I always ask everyone this, do you have a, you know, when you were in second grade or sixth grade or whatever it is, it could be that, but do you have a person or a show that really influenced you that like rocked your world and changed your world and said, this is, this is me, this is what I need to be doing? Or did you just? Yes. And I'm fortunate to say I recently got to uh, direct and choreograph uh, for the first time I got to direct and choreograph Annie. Wow. Annie. Annie is one of those pieces. I did not see the most recent revival, uh, but it's it's one of those perfect shows. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect show. It has the great comedy writing, delicious time and place, uh, characters that are so beautifully written, mm-hmm. uh, and a great big heart. I, I love Annie. I, I did it uh, in Spanish in Bogota, Colombia. Wow. And even in Spanish, I would weep in the second <laughs> act. I would weep when they did, the, of all places, um, the scene in the cabinet with FDR in the cabinet mm-hmm. when he reprises tomorrow. Yeah. And it becomes not only a personal theme, but a theme for all of America. Right. I just started weeping because mm. she, he's saying hope is, what we, is all we have to hold on to. Mm-hmm. And it's just beautiful. It's beautiful scenes, beautifully written. I just love that show. So yeah. I say that's the one when I was 13 years old. I saw Andrew McArdle. <laughs> Me too. On Mike Douglas show, singing. She sang something else, but I learned that she was from the show called Annie. And then I started investigating wherever I could using TV, which is not the same resource as is the internet, of course. But um, I got the album. I listened to the music. I started to understand that, that the lyric in that, that was a, something where the lyrics were telling the story. And that was new to me because I wasn't, I didn't grow up around theater and musical theater. Um, so it was Annie that had me go like, this is something that I just died with stories being told through music. Mm-hmm. And then when I finally got to see it, I actually went on a trip when I was 14 to London with a study group. And, <laughs> was one of the shows we got to see yeah and i was smitten i got to see the show and see it be just this gem that works with a fantastic woman playing this hand again which is a great role <laughs> well i mean it's amazing because when you think about tomorrow the sun will always come out tomorrow the sun will come out tomorrow it's a perfect metaphor for what's happening today oh man 
So anyway, I think we have to leave this um, at that today. Uh, thank you. I want to thank my guest. Oh, my God. Thank you, DJ Salisbury. Um, you'll see him directing uh, and choreographing our upcoming summer production of All Shook Up that opens on July 10th at the Madison Theater. And we hope to see everyone there. And until, until then, we'll keep the seats warm for you. Thank you, DJ. I want to thank producers Kathleen the Machine Marino, Eileen Swagger Sweeney, and the VP of Advancement Edward the Terrific Thompson. Technical support and editing by Calvin the Great Guevara Flores. Graphic designs by Francis Bouncing Bonnet and Sarah Prancing Palazzolo.